reading from Ephesians 1, 16 through 23. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. These are in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in Christ. When he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things in the subjection under his feet and gave him as head over all, <clears throat> over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. This is God's word. You may be seated. Good morning. Throughout this year, Mark has been stepping us through the books of the Bible, looking at a message from each of the books, and he has reminded us that the Bible is not a collection of random stories, but one story about God, man, what went wrong, and what God is doing to put it back together. This morning, we'll be focused on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. But before we open God's word, let's go to the Father in prayer. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for granting us time and resources and this opportunity this morning to, to come before you and to worship. Father, we want to live for you. We pray that your will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Father, we pray that your kingdom will grow in unity and, and reveal your wisdom. Use us to, re to fulfill the godly purposes that you have for your people, those purposes that you've given to us. And so, Father, we pray for eyes that can see and ears that are open to your word so that you can be at work in our lives according to your will and purposes. It is in your Son's name that we pray. Amen. Many years ago, when I lived in Brazil, I received a very somber phone call on a Saturday morning from one of my missionary teammates. He said, you need to come to the, the church building quickly, Barry. We have a problem. Upon arriving at the house that served as our church building, I looked inside and realized that half of the roof on the left side was missing. Inside the church building was a pile of rubble that ran down the length of it, about four feet high and probably three or four feet wide. 
glancing up at the hotel that was being constructed to the left of our church building, it was easy to reconstruct what had happened. Over the weeks and the months prior to this, that Saturday, we had watched this building being constructed. They had poured cement floors and then more brick walls would be put up and then another cement floor would be, would be poured and they just kept working their way up. And they'd gone up about six or seven stories. And they had built a wall on that very top story. And obviously what had happened, a strong wind had come during the night and blown off that brick wall six, seven stories up. And it came down right to the ceiling of our church building. And as I looked at all that rubble, I was grateful to God that that had not happened on a Sunday morning. In some ways, the story of human life can be likened to that pile of shattered wood and broken brick. People can find themselves broken, incapable of fixing themselves, and hopelessly insufficient to live up to the purpose that our Creator has given for us. Have you ever stared in the face of corrosive and, and divisive power of lies? Have you ever looked in the face of illicit desire and seen theft and selfish ambition? Have you ever suffered injustice because of sin's work in someone else's life? Then you're painfully aware how sin can wreak havoc, how it destroys relationships, how it can take a life and just lead it into rubble. This is not to deny that people can pull themselves together, that they can smooth out some of the problems, that people can do good in spite of the sin that has already pervaded their life. People do. In fact, in the news, sometimes we'll have stories about what people have done and the good things that they do to bless others. But this is to acknowledge that sin is pervasive and it destroys sinless perfection throughout this world. And that true spirituality lies in rubble. But the Apostle Paul wrote about a power that God possesses and uses within human lives to fix what is fundamentally broken, creating new lives capable of, of living up to the divinely intended function that he has for people. And it's in this letter that we'll be looking at this morning in Ephesians where Paul described God's overarching plan. He will also describe God's power for the believer. And what we find in Ephesians is nothing less than answers to questions like, am I really in danger without Jesus? How can God fix my broken life? How can I live up to the potential God desires for me? As a believer, what am I supposed to be doing to fulfill the purpose that God has given me. Let's begin by trying to envision the Apostle Paul in prison at Rome. He is dependent upon his Christian friends to bring him food and clothing and, and anything else that he is going to require to live. And so they bring him not only these things, but they also bring him news. They, they tell him how Churches throughout the Mediterranean world are faring. And sometimes the news is, is encouraging. 
and how God's people are, are living as they ought. And they're faithful and they're growing in spite of opposition. But sometimes the messages that he receives indicates that God's people are struggling and they're facing a particular problem. From that prison, Paul will write four letters. He writes Philemon, and then Colossians, Ephesians, and Philippians. And as Paul thought about that church in Ephesus, he wanted them to live up to who God had called them to be. And Ephesians chapter 1 and and verse 3 gets to this core. He says, I therefore the prisoner in the Lord entreat you to walk worthily of the calling into which you were called. Strive to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is the goal. This is where he wants his reader to end up. But how do we get there? What is there that can repair our lives and and help us live up to the potential that God desires for us? This apostle who had traveled far and wide and who had obviously witnessed firsthand just about every type of a broken life, he'll unveil the answer as he offers up a prayer for the Ephesian Christians. In fact, he works this prayer into the very part of his lesson to set the stage for what he's going to write. He prays, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you spiritual wisdom and revelation in your growing knowledge of Him, since the eyes of your heart have been enlightened, so that you may know what is the hope of His calling, what is the wealth of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the incomparable greatness of His power toward us who believe, as displayed in the exercise of His immense strength. There. There is a reason why Paul starts this prayer, beseeching God to grant spiritual wisdom and revelation in their growing knowledge of Him. Paul knew that for people to escape from merely being pieces of broken rubble and to become new and fitted into God's project, filled with purpose, that people need to accurately understand some things about God. They need to know what God has done for us and what God is doing. They need to know how we fit into what God is doing in this world. Knowing the truth about God helps us live for God. Knowing the truth about God helps us live for God. And so Paul is going to pray for their growing knowledge of God. If Paul, that prisoner for Christ Jesus, could write, us a letter here at MacArthur Park. I suspect that he might likewise write to us. I want to pray that you grow in your knowledge of God. Because when God's people continue to grow in that knowledge of who God is and what He has done and His power for the the believer, it enables us to live more and more for Him. In fact, Paul's going to spend the first three chapters of Ephesians laying a solid foundation about who God is and what He has done before He lifts a finger to provide the practical details about how we are to live in this world and how we are to fulfill the calling that God has given us. 
So what do we need to know about God that could so profoundly shape our lives? Well, the first thing we need to know is that God planned to work through Christ to create unity. This is the first big idea that Paul will unveil in this letter. He chose us in Christ before the founding of the world that we should be dedicated and blameless before Him in love. He predestined us for sonship in Him through Jesus Christ. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins. You see, even before the world began, God had a blueprint of what He wanted to do. God predestined that He would take shattered lives, sinful lives that were alienated from Him, and He would remake them into being His dedicated, blameless, and forgiven people. Well, how would God do this? Jesus would make all of this possible. And in fact, we have the first echo of this in this story, the one story we find in Scripture. Back there with Abraham nearly 2,000 years before Christ, God tells Abraham that it is in your descendant that I'm going to bless the world. It's through this son who is coming. In fact, this blueprint of what God would do was bigger than just using Jesus to take rubble and to make it into new life and to make new bricks, if you will. But God intended through Christ also to unite these earthly bricks with the heavenly. That is to bring humanity into relationship even with himself. And so he continues, he made known to us the mystery of his goodwill according to his good pleasure which He purposed in Christ, to be put into effect when the times will have reached their fulfillment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. There is unity here. God has a plan. He wants to take people with their lives that are broken, make them holy and blameless and forgiven before Him, but take these people and through Christ He's going to bring them together with what is in heaven. To state what should be obvious, This blueprint, this plan that God had before the world even begins calls for constructing and doing what humanity is incapable of doing. Yeah, sure, we have organizations and and we can do some good. And sometimes humanity can play nice together. But we cannot give life to what is irreparably dead spiritually. We cannot unite humanity with heaven With God? For God to possess this plan is not sufficient in and of itself. If a person wants to build a building, the tallest building in the world, well, they can make out the plan and they can have this wonderful plan of what they want to do, but unless they have the power and the resources to do it, it's just a plan. But God also possessed the power and the resources to accomplish what He wanted to do. The second thing we need to know about God involves what God's power does for the believer. And so Paul prayed, I pray that the eyes of your heart have been enlightened so that you may know what is the incomparable greatness of his power toward us who believe. God has power toward the believer and it's going to enable him to do what his plan entails. Knowledge of where there is power can change how you live. It can change the decisions you make. This morning when I woke up, it was dark. Very dark. 
And as I moved through the house, I knew where the light switches were. So I could move to a light switch, I could throw that light switch, and light would come on. I knew where there was power. And that changed and influenced my decisions about exactly what I was going to do. We've all seen science fiction movies. Imagine for a second a, a science fiction scenario where George Washington is transported through time and wakes up in my house at night. And he gets up. And he starts to walk through my house. And all around him is power, electricity, in the wall with these light switches. But he doesn't know about that. It's been a long time before houses have electricity and light. It's there, it's available. But because he doesn't know it, he doesn't go to the wall and find it and flip a switch. Knowing God's power for the believer. Paul wants the believer to know what God's power for him is or for her. Because it can change and influence how we live life and make a difference in the decisions we make. And so for very good reason, Paul wants them to understand this. And before actually describing what this power is that's at work in the life of the believer, Paul first gives an example of it so we can grasp how strong and powerful it truly is. He writes, this power he exercised in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly realms, far above every rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And God put all things under Christ's feet and he gave him to the church as head over everything. When someone dies... And they are truly dead, three days dead. Decomposition has begun. There's no, and we're going to start them again. We know there's no reviving them. But God's power not only raised Christ from the dead, but exalted him above every authority and every power that will ever exist. And placed him over all things and over the church. That's power. Jesus' resurrection and exaltation reminds us what the risen Lord taught. As he spoke with his disciples after he'd been raised from the dead, he said, All authority has been given me in heaven and on earth. And then he tells him to go. God's power makes alive what is dead. God's power makes what is whole, that, that which has lain helpless, helplessly shattered and destroyed. For those who will believe, God's power creates spiritual life. His power can take us and make us spiritually alive. And this is the second thing that we need to know what God's power can do for us. Well, if we step out of what Paul is writing just for a second and, and think about Paul's life, reflect on this. If we were to ask people who are living quiet, comfortable lives what they think about Paul's lifestyle, what would they say? Remember, this is the guy who keeps opening his mouth about Jesus. It causes him to be beaten. 
it causes him to be beaten so badly that, at least on one occasion, they think his body is so badly torn and broken, he's dead. This is the guy who cannot stop talking about Jesus, and he's stoned. His preaching leads him to be imprisoned and be on a ship that's shipwrecked. It leads him to being thrown into prison for years. Might not people who are living nice, quiet, comfortable lives look at this lifestyle of Paul and go, you know, Paul, you're just a little bit too fanatical in your faith? That's just a little over the top. But is Paul's lifestyle so unsurprising? Paul had seen the risen Lord. He had been granted a glimpse into the third heaven. He had heard things that humans are not permitted to say or repeat. He knew the certainty of the dire consequences which await those who refuse to acknowledge Christ. He knew that what we tend to value so much and which can wrap our lives up and and can often be a large component of how we live life and where we focus, that that becomes worthless after death when we face eternity. He knew all of these things and without a shadow of a doubt, and although he initially had wanted to deny it, he had every reason to deny that Jesus was raised. Saul of Tarsus, who became the Apostle Paul, knew that God's power had raised Jesus from the dead. And this was a cataclysmic game changer in his life. And it's going to lead him to go into stonings and beatings and all the other abuse and persecution because he knows it is true and that other people are not taking it seriously. Would we be a little bit more bold in living out our faith before others, might we be a little bit more like Paul if we had also seen the risen Christ? If the risen Lord had spoken directly to us? Here in this letter of Ephesians, Paul reminds us and those ancient Christians in Ephesus about how God's power has intervened in our lives. And although you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you formerly lived according to this world's present path. You know, before Paul cannot launch into the good news about God's power in our life, he first is compelled to pull off any false ideas about who we might have been before we came to Christ. In his words, we are dead in transgression and sin. But that's not everything. Unfortunately, it gets worse. We were, by nature, children of wrath, even as the rest. And this is not all. In Ephesians 2.12, he goes on to say that we were without hope and without God in this world. This is the frank evaluation of, of every person before he or she comes to Christ. Some people might feel like their lives are okay, that everything is pretty good. But the truth is, And it does no one any good to ignore the truth that if they're outside of Christ, things are not okay. Not only were our lives not fulfilling their godly intended purpose, but we face God's wrath at the end of time. 
And so every day that a person lives without coming to Christ is like playing Russian roulette. Frankly, I don't understand living that way. All of our actions or or lack of actions carry consequences. And none is greater than this. But the message that Paul wants to give us, the reader, the believer, is that is a very encouraging one. His focus is on the good news of God's power for those who have chosen to become a believer. But God, being rich in mercy because of His great love with which He loved us, even though we were dead in transgressions, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you are saved. Just as God's power had taken Christ who was dead and made Him alive and then exalted Him, Paul's going to say, God has taken your life that was dead and made you alive and exalted you with Christ in the heavenly places. God's power takes what is spiritually dead and makes it alive and unites it with God. And under Christ, the things of heaven and earth are being brought together. Why does God use His power in this way toward the believer? Because God loves people that much. So how does this help us? How how does laying this foundation, Paul, help us to live for God? Well, part of his answer is going to be found just a few verses later. For we are His workmanship, having been created in Christ Jesus for good works, that God prepared beforehand so we may do them. You see, if you're in Christ, God has remade you to be able to fulfill your purpose in living for Him. God takes us as broken rubble. He recreates us to be these new bricks capable of being used in His great project. And so to the, current, to the Christians in Philippi, Paul would write, it is God who works in you to will and to act according to His good purpose. God makes us His workmanship. And then He works through us to achieve His purposes. But knowing that God has repaired and equipped those who belong to Christ to be able to achieve what God wants them to do, it's very encouraging. The third thing that we need to know about God involves God's Son is building His unified body. What was dead... And severed from God, God is made alive. And then God joins them together in order to construct God's blueprint, what it called for. A uniting under Christ of things of heaven and earth. So then you are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Because you have been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus Himself as the cornerstone. In Him, in Christ, the whole building being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. God is making us alive, bringing us together with Himself, taking people who are, are now been made alive and bringing them together into this building. Christ is constructing this temple where God's Spirit lives. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 3, Paul would say, Now, you preserve that unity of the Spirit. Diligently make every effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit. What is that unity of the Spirit that he's talking about? He's just described it here. 
Paul has described it. God is bringing together everything under Christ. He's bringing people into relationship with Himself. He's bringing people into relationship with each other and building a unified body. And God's people are to preserve that. Not only does God remake our lives, but Christ is dissolving those chasms between people and constructing this newly redeemed, humanity-made-whole temple in which God can dwell by His Spirit. And this... This construction is called the church. Paul would write, To me, less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given to proclaim to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to enlighten everyone about God's secret plan, a secret that has been hidden for ages in God who has created all things. The purpose of this enlightenment is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should now be disclosed to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly realms. This was according to the eternal purpose that He accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and confident access to God because of Christ's faithfulness. You know, sometimes I hear people say, Why the church? And you know, I, I get Jesus saving us. I, I get living a good moral life. It makes a difference in this world. But why the church? I, I really don't need that. I don't need that organization. And sometimes people will offer practical answers. They're true, but practical answers. You know, if you aren't a part of a body of Christians regularly, if you're out there by yourself, you can get worn down. The body encourages us. It keeps us focused and on track. And that's true. And that's good. Sometimes people will say, well, you know, the, the church, you need to go to church because we're supposed to worship God. You have an obligation to worship God. Yet we're supposed to worship God. But this is not plumbing the depth of why the church. The church is God's plan on how He's going to work in this world. And He's bringing things together and unifying them. And He's wanting to work through this non-human creation that He is making through Christ. And if we want to be a participant in what God is doing in this world, we need to be part of the church. We can't go out here and just be by ourselves and go, you know, I'm doing okay, me and God, because that's not what God is doing. He's changing us, bringing us in relationship to Himself and putting us together and breaking down the chasms between people and bringing us into this one body, the body of Christ. And through this, He's... Revealing His wisdom. And He's working. And fulfilling His plan. The church is central to what God is doing. My question for Paul might be, why spend three chapters of ink describing God's eternal plan and how God is working through Christ? I suspect his answer to me would be, well, Christians won't know how they're supposed to live 
won't know their divine purpose until they first get a glimpse of what God is trying to do with them and where God is trying to go. And if they can understand that, then they will know how to work with God and not against Him. In other words, to live the Christian life, we are to promote God's purposes. If people do not understand the big picture and how they fit into it, how do they know what to do? But if Christians are enlightened to know what their calling is, that is how they fit into God's master plan. And what God has already done in their lives and what He wants to do with their lives as His tools in this world, His workmanship, that He's created them to do good works, that knowledge reveals how they need to live, the decisions that they need to make. It makes a tremendous difference in how they live. And then our lives can either be a source of furthering what God is trying to do in this world or it can undermine it. And so in view of all that God has done, Paul urges the Christian, live worthily of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. If God's work created unity between us and heaven, and between different people, the work of the Christian is to maintain what God has achieved. We can't create unity. I can't reach across the aisle to someone wherever and go, okay, we're unified. It's God who creates the unity. And I need to preserve the unity He's created. Now, there's something that, to me, just jumps out as I read all of this. Why is Paul writing this if we're puppets? We're not puppets. That's why. You see, God has His plan and how He wants to work and use us, but if I become a Christian... And then God somehow jumps into my life and is going to make me like a puppet, do what I'm supposed to do. If I really don't have a choice in how I'm going to live, then there's no need for Paul to write all of this. He doesn't need to write to the church that they need to live a particular way. He doesn't need to tell them how this information is supposed to shape their lives. The only reason you need to write this is if people, God's people, might choose to live outside of what God is trying to do in this world. You need to tell the church how they need to live because God hasn't made us puppets and He's not going to force us. But we need to seek to preserve what He has made. See, Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 4.30, it is possible to grieve the Spirit by whom we were sealed for the day of redemption. He'll tell the church, don't grieve the Spirit. Don't work against what God is doing in this world. By how, don't work against Him by, by how you live. Work with God. Don't grieve the Spirit. Well, how do we preserve this divinely created unity of, of God's project? Paul is going to first provide a, a short list of characteristics, such as being humble, having humility, and bearing with each other. In the latter part of Ephesians Paul drills down into a number of the practical aspects of behavior and attitude regarding how to live worthily of our calling. And it boils down to a simple idea. God has remade you as His workmanship, given you new life. Now, live in accordance with God's new ways. It's simple. 
It's not complicated. Live in accordance with God's ways. And so Paul will explain in minute and vivid detail how we live in these new ways. There's basically a a practical two-step method he gives us, process. First, get rid of ungodly thinking and behavior, attitudes. Get rid of that stuff. Get rid of the ways we used to live. And second, embrace how God's people are supposed to think. Learn from Christ how we need to think and act. And so he says in chapter 4, So I say this and insist in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. You were taught with reference to your former way of life to lay aside the old man who is being corrupted in accordance with his deceitful desires. Lay that aside. Instead, Paul says, what you need to do is to be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man who has been created in God's image in righteousness and holiness that comes from truth. To be renewed in our minds and to learn of Christ is going to take time. It's going to take time in Bible study. It's going to take time in prayer. It's going to take time encouraging each other. It's going to take time seeing other Christian role models reflecting Christ and learning and growing. What we have in Ephesians is this beautiful picture of God's plan and what God is doing. And the purpose that He's filled our lives with as His people. We participate in what God is doing in this world. It's not just about our jobs. It's not just about having good friends. It's not just about helping somebody. But we can participate in what God has planned before the foundation of the world. So we teach And so we act. And so we do the good. Not simply to do good, but to be a part and to serve God's purposes. Well, as we wind these thoughts up, there's maybe a couple of questions. Are you someone who is still outside of Christ? The apostle who saw the risen Lord and who received... Jesus' message by revelation tells us that without Christ, we have no hope and we're without God. And such a life might eke out activity and, and seek to find purpose and enjoyment and, and might be successful in, in satisfaction in life. But in the end, we all die. And whether that comes sooner or whether that takes a long time, When we die, we will stand before God, accountable for all that we have done. And if we do not have Christ, then we stand alone. And in spite of all the good that we might have done, it is the things that we've done that's wrong that will condemn us. And that left us spiritually dead. But there's good news. Paul wants to remind us that God wants to forgive us. That God wants to claim us and claim you and and make you a part of His wonderful project. It does not matter how great our sin has been or what we're currently struggling with. That's where God starts with us. And He calls us to, okay, focus your eyes on how I want you to live. And I'm going to strengthen and help you. Now, we're going to start off and start walking this path together. 
the conversation language in Ephesians 2 is points to baptism when a person chooses to rely upon Christ, chooses to rely upon God's power to take us who are spiritually dead and to raise us up with Christ to become a new person, God's workmanship in Christ Jesus, filled with that purpose that He has given us as His new people. And while any of us might live for a long time, there will come a day, and that may be sooner, that may be later, when it will be a person's last opportunity that they have to rely on Christ. We don't need to have every question answered. You don't need to know everything that there is to know, but you do need to know that you've done wrong. You need to accept that Christ died for you and was raised for you. And you need to choose to rely upon Christ's death by obeying the Gospel's call for you to be buried with Him in baptism and raised with Him to walk a new life. For us, who are God's people, Paul's intent was to encourage us to live worthily of who God has made us to be. How we live in San Antonio makes a difference. And God wants to use you as a member of Christ's body to accomplish the good that He wants and desires to do in this world that's racked with sin. And as we participate in the church and as we worship Him and as we live our lives as He desires, He can work through us to will and to act according to His good will and purpose. At this time, we have the opportunity as we stand and we're going to sing a song to either make a prayer request known or to come and to acknowledge that Jesus is Christ and to be buried with Him and raised again. Let's stand and sing. Your anchor hold in the storms of life When the clouds unfold their wings of strife